we are at really a second pivot point for this book of Samuel. Up to this point, we have seen in the life of David just God being with him and though difficulties with dealing with Saul and being on the run, that God has ultimately been with him and brought him success to the point that now he is ruling as king over Israel and Judah. He's unified the nation under his reign. However, in chapter 11, as we looked at last time, we now have the the immense failure of, of David And the sin now that he believes he has gotten away with. Up to this point, he's taken Bathsheba. He's had Uriah killed. And now Bathsheba is his wife. And it seems, at least according to David, that everything has gone according to plan. Cover-up is a success. He has sent a message even to his commander, Joab, don't worry about all the, the people that died. Encourage him. Good job. But chapter 11 ended with these very important words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And now it is going to be God's turn to have a say in the events that have transpired. And so as this opens and we are introduced in chapter 12, or really not introduced, but reminded of a prophet that we were introduced to earlier back in chapter 7, a prophet named Nathan who had come to David with a really powerful and encouraging message when David wanted to build a house for the Lord that God's message through Nathan was, I'm going to build your house. It's going to be your descendants that are going to be on the throne forever. And some great promises were declared through Nathan. And now, Nathan comes to David this time. And you'll notice in chapter 12, verse 1 of 2 Samuel, it reads, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought and he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. It is interesting that David is is greeted by Nathan and Nathan comes First with a story. (laughs) David, let me tell you a story about these two men who are in a certain city. One rich, one poor. And as the story unfolds about this poor man who has this one little lamb and how it's basically like a pet to him, which is pretty unusual in ancient Near Eastern times, but it plays the story up of how precious this lamb is to this poor man and a rich man who has all kinds of herds and flocks 
and he has just some traveler coming by and the hospitality decides not to offer up his own lamb, but take the one precious lamb that this poor man has. And in the telling of the story, it is just Nathan basically giving an egregious story that everybody would be upset about. You can't help but read this and go, what a terrible man this rich person was. Why would you take this one thing that this poor man enjoyed in his life and then just eat it like that? How could you be so callous and cold? How could you be so terrible? And the whole point is to offend the sensibilities of anybody who would hear the story. And... It does something very powerful in the heart of David. Because David immediately realizes the person who did this is worthy of death. Terrible wickedness is on display out of a person who would do something as egregious and cold-hearted as this. And not only that, as the law would accord, this person should receive four times what has been lost. And so four lambs would be owed back. And so a restitution needs to be made as David well states it there in in verse 6, because he had no pity. David just really lays it all out. And I think it is important to observe that David's assessment is absolutely correct. You know, David just hits it right on the mark as Nathan tells the story. And David is supposed to be a righteous king and administering righteous judgments throughout his land. And as the story is told, David is very clear in what is the righteous response to this. And what you see David proclaiming, and I think very important that he says it, Because ultimately, this is the ugliness of sin. He sees it. It's evidence, unavoidable. Nobody could listen to this and go, well, the rich man probably had a good reason or anything like that. You read this and you're just absolutely offended by what this rich man has done. And I think it is interesting that Nathan goes about it this way because there is something problematic about how... We look at our own sins. And the problem is this. It sure is easy to see it in everybody else. And not so easy to see it in ourselves. And that's what David is is presented with. Rather than telling a story about Bathsheba and Uriah... Let me tell you a story that is going to obviously help you see the the horror of what this rich man has done. It is just clear as day as how awful this is. The ugliness of the sin, the wickedness that has been committed and how this person deserves to die and a restitution needs to be made because this man is pitiless. And I think it's important to see how we have to have that sense of how ugly sin is. That's what we have to come to terms with. That's what Nathan does at this moment. Is to get David to think about how ugly this action is. How awful it is. How terrible this sin ultimately is. It's also worth pointing out. The way David goes about this is also a proclamation of what true repentance would look like. 
And repentance would look to right the wrong. This person deserves to die. He needs to repay what he's done. It's not just simply, well, he should tell that poor man sorry. He needs to do something. All that he can to restore. And that's what the law of Moses had, had clearly stated. In fact, you might remember even Zacchaeus speaking similarly when confronted about if he had taken too much of any, he'd restore it to such a degree, even fourfold like that, that restoration of wrongdoing needs to happen. And that's what David proclaims as well. He sees the ugliness of sin and how restitution needs to be made for such a terrible action. So David is right where Nathan wants him. Verse 7. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Now Nathan shifts into the rebuke and just simply says, uh, you see the sin of the of this rich man. You you understand the horror of what he's done. David, that's you. That's what you've done. The parallel is striking. And notice how Nathan begins this by pointing out there in in verse 8 how God had given, verses 7 and 8, God had given and given and given to David. Think about all that God has done. He starts in verse 7 and tells him, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I have put you on the throne and given you essentially your heart's desire. I've given you whatever you want. And especially to underscore at the end of verse 8, if that were too little, you should have just asked. All you do is ask that God had given and given and given to David. And notice the striking words of verse 9. That verse 9 he says, You've despised the word of the Lord. You've despised the word of the Lord. You didn't care about what God said. You knew what was right and you didn't care. You despised the word of the Lord. 
And then the condemnation that is given there in verse 9, I think ought to be extraordinarily striking to us. Did you notice in the condemnation what is exactly condemned? You might be surprised. Did you notice nowhere in the condemnation is the adultery, the sexual immorality. That's not in the condemnation. He's condemned for how he handled his sin. How did he handle his sin? You killed Uriah and took his wife. How you handled your sin is where this condemnation comes in with all its ferocity. How could you do that? And we talked about that in chapter 11 of all the things that he's doing in the cover up, the horror of the sin, certainly, but the cover up of how he tries to get away with it is all the more egregious. And that is what Nathan points out here. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Ultimately, rather than seeking repentance for what you did, you continue to do your will. You continue to do what you wanted to do. And it's so important to see that condemnation. That the sin would have been bad enough. But rather than seeking repentance, David has gone on and on and on in that cover up. We talked about in chapter 11, all the lives that died. Not only Uriah, other soldiers of Israel's army die because of this. And I think another striking part of the judgment that you see in verses 10 through 12, because you've despised the word of the Lord, what you tried to get away with, judgment's now going to be public. That touches a little bit of what we talked about this morning. Your sins eventually will come out. Who you are eventually will be shown. There's, there's no hiding our sins. Eventually they come to light. And here is God making that proclamation to David. David, you thought you were going to get away with it. You were well pleased in how it all panned out. And Uriah died. And it all just looked really natural. It all just seemed above board. But God knew. And now judgment is going to be in public against you. Everything that you have done will come back upon you. Verse 10, the sword will never depart your house because you despised me. Because you didn't care about my word. You didn't care about what I've said to do. And instead you have tried to get what you want. You have taken what you desired. And now this judgment will come upon you. Verse 13. What would you say if Nathan had come to you and said these things to you? How would you respond to such an aggressive rebuke that you have coming from Nathan? I want you to listen to what David says in verse 13. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to notice there's nothing else. There's no other words. No other statements. In particular, I want you to see he doesn't argue with Nathan. He doesn't try to make excuses. He doesn't offer up his reasons. 
He doesn't try to cover up his air before the people of Israel. Think about Saul. Okay, I've sinned now. You know, let's kind of put this behind us and honor me before the people. Let's, let's keep this on the down low and hush hush. Let's get back to the way things were. Uh, or try to say like, like Saul, oh, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have done what he's wanted. I'm not sure what you're talking about, like Saul said. Simple sentence. Without deflection, without argument, without excuse, without reasoning, I have sinned against the Lord. I hope we learn something really important about what David does right here. Because one of the things that we can lose sight of is the reasons don't matter. For all of our excuses and all of our deflections and all of our reasons and all of our I think so's, it doesn't matter. You've sinned against the Lord. And so often we can try to justify ourselves or it's not that bad or if you only knew what was going on or if you were in my condition and and David doesn't do any of that. He sinned and the reasons don't matter. That is what a true, honest confession really understands. It doesn't matter why I did it. It doesn't matter what was behind it. I could offer up all the excuses that you could possibly come up with. But friends, at the end of the day, it's sin. It doesn't matter what all your reasons may be. And it doesn't matter how good we think they are. We've sinned against God. And I think it is something very powerful to see that sometimes the truest confessions are short and simple like this because there's really nothing else to say. Nathan has said it. You killed Uriah. You took his wife. You did it in cold blood, premeditated, What else is there to say? You're the one who did it. That is the honest embrace of true confession. That's my sin. Here's what I did. End of story. As shocking as that confession is, when you think about the other kings of Israel who often didn't care to have any kind of heart repentance or confession to God, as shocking as it is to see such a powerful, succinct, I have sinned against the Lord. What happens next that by the hand of God is arguably more shocking in verses 13 and 14. Nathan says to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. We understand that that's what should have happened. In the law, the penalty for premeditated murder, as David executes it, would have been death. That's why 
Nathan moves David to understand that. You remember what David's response is? What should have happened to the rich man? That rich man deserves to die. Exactly right. You deserve to die for what you have done, David. And that's why the first words out of Nathan's mouth next are stunning because they are words of grace and forgiveness and of hope. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There may not be a better sentence in the Bible than that. You ought to die. But the Lord has put away your sin. And you're not going to die. I think that is such a powerful picture of the kind of response that God has to the truly penitent, poor in spirit, mourning over sin's heart. This is exactly what God wants. We considered this back in the days of Saul. What if Saul had had the right response? Rather than the, oh, well, you know the people and all the excuses and all of the reasons to just own his sin to God as he does. You see the response of God to come before God and say, here is my sin. Here is what I've done. That's exactly what God wants. And that's exactly what's on display here. That God wants us to take our sin to put it directly at his feet and say, I have sinned against you. You might remember in Psalm 51 that that's exactly what David says. Against you and you alone have I sinned. There's no excuses. No, well, you know how it is trying to be king and you know the difficulties and the corruption and the hardship and you know how it goes. He just, I've sinned against you, God. Friends, if there's anything you get out of this chapter is that this is the answer God wants. Is just simply, I have sinned against God. A heart that is broken and understands that that is the right response. However, verse 14, Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. If this big statement of hope that we would never forget, if we will confess our sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive those sins, but please also attach the rest of what the message is, which is, Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean the consequences are gone. Very first thing Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. However, the child's going to die. And don't forget what was said earlier. The sword's not going to depart your house. And David is going to be put through life torment because of his sins. Forgiveness does not erase the consequences of sin. So often I think what we wish is, okay, Lord, I have asked for forgiveness. So take it all away and let's just start all over again and put it back to square one. It never happens. It can't happen. 
There are consequences for our sins. And we have to deal with the consequences for our sins. And the consequences that David has to deal with should not be taken lightly. I cannot imagine what David is going to go through is watch the death of many of his children because of his sin. Not only this unborn child will die shortly after birth, but his other sons are also going to die by the sword because of this one sin. I think all of us as parents would go, hey, put punishment on me, not my kids. And to watch what's going to happen in David's life, for it's going to be because of him that his kids are going to die, is a very weighty judgment. A very heavy judgment is laid upon him. And it is so important that we not forget. Consequences must still be dealt with in this life. Even though we are forgiven by God, we can absolutely be cleansed by God, have the sins erased. God will not hold them against us. We thank and praise God for it, but that doesn't mean all of the collateral damage that comes from that sin is going to disappear. It won't. It can't. The consequences of the actions remain. And this is what David is then told. I want to just give three very quick thoughts, some applications to the first half of this. And we're going to look at how David handles this, Lord willing, next week in the rest of chapter 12. But I think three important lessons that really come from this that we're supposed to learn from David in this huge, huge failure and what takes place. Number one. This one, we know this one, and yet we don't believe this one. You can have it all and it won't be enough. You can have it all and it still won't be enough. Did you hear God say that to David? I I gave you everything. You were nothing. You were a shepherd. Your own dad didn't think you were king material. I rose you up and put you on the throne and rescued you from Saul and gave you everything. I've given you what your heart's desire, whatever you wanted. And even if there was something else you wanted, you just simply had to ask me if that were too little. Verse 8, I would add to you as much more. And here's ultimately our problem. We think that happiness is just one more action away. We will finally be happy if we could just have or do or something one more. And that's going to be the answer. That's going to be the solution. That's going to be what we need. And then I will finally be happy. We should, we should know from technology right now how, how, how false that is. As soon as you have your new whatever it is, it's not long before. It's just not doing what it's supposed to do. This will be the last thing I ever need. Well, just give it a little bit. Happiness is always just one more action 
I just had a little bit more, if I just had a bigger place, or if I just had a better job, or if I just had this, or I just had that, if I just had this one life change, that would make everything so much better. And friends, think about David's son. David's son has it all. And he does the exact same thing. It wasn't enough. And yet for us, we think, if we would just have one more. It's the lie of sin. The lie of sin says to us, just one more time. And this will be what you need to make you happy. And we need to learn from the lives of David and Solomon who did have so much that the lie of one more is truly a lie. And friends, I hope we would think about this for our own lives as as well. How much do we have? How much has God given us? How much do we enjoy? Are we going to now go back before God and say, yeah, but but that's not enough. I, I would only be happy if I could have more and more and more. You know, and sometimes God grants those more things to us. And then what do we tell God? Oh, that wasn't enough. I need more. We're going to be doing in a couple of weeks for our overflow. Next two weeks are overflow. And one of them is going to be about contentment. And our need to be satisfied with what God has given us. To truly just be satisfied of what I have is enough. Because what we are doing is we are addressing our sinful heart because we recognize that our sinful heart will always want more. And it's time to tell that heart, no, you're not going to be happy. Stop saying it's more. It's not going to make the difference. It's not going to be better just because we change this thing or do this thing or get this one thing or get more. That's not going to be it. And however long you've lived, you know, all of those years, that's been true. (laughs) And here's David. Where God says to him. I gave and gave and gave. And you're telling me it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. For David, he had to have Bathsheba. When will it be enough? Which leads then to the two results of what we see in these judgments that are given in regards to David and as Nathan proclaims them. So absolutely correct. Sin requires death. That's the requirement of sin. We can never lose sight of the clarity of Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death. And not only are we deserving of death, but think about the people we've harmed and the, 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 the hurt and the pain that has caused our sin. And as David is told and even expresses himself, we, we owe all kinds of restitution for what we've done wrong. And here's what I want us to think about. Our sins are deserving of death. Our actions are worthy of fourfold restitution to everyone that we've ever harmed or sinned against. Is it really worth it? 
Is sin really worth it? Let's put it in the shoes of David. Was Bathsheba really worth all that was going to now happen to him? You know, you wish you could like paint the whole forward picture of David. If you do this, here's everything that's going to happen. Here's the total result of it all. Children are going to die. You're going to be run out of Jerusalem. You're going to lose your throne. Your own child is going to want you to die. Is sin worth it? So often what we do is we think that the exchange of the eternal pleasures and joys of God are worth exchanging for these temporary fleeting pleasures. We need to remind ourselves that every sin that we ever take advantage of and commit, we are getting the worst end of the trade. We are always getting the worst end of the trade. And here's how you can know that that's true. Think of whatever sin that you want to think about. Are you now permanently satisfied now that you committed that sin? <laughs> no. It promised to be all of that. It promised to be the solution. And then the next day comes. Well, that was gone. Fleeting and temporary. It is so important for us to truly calculate the trade that we are making. Because every sin that we commit, we are getting the raw deal. Every sin that we commit is worthy of death. Put it on the scale like that. We deserve to die for these actions that are being committed. Is that worth it? And are all the consequences that come from these choices, will that really be worth it? The pain that it brings to our lives, the difficulty, the suffering. Is it really worth it? God keeps trying to give us the best. And what we take is the lesser alternative of sin over and over again. Sin requires death. Is sin really worth it? Which leads then to the third thought. The thought that you see Nathan trying to express to David oh so clearly there in verse 13 that we only live by the mercy and grace of God. This is one of the most important themes in the scriptures. We only live because of the grace of God. It is the message from the very beginning. What should have happened to Adam and Eve? They should have died. That was the decree. Do not eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. You shall surely die. What should have happened to Cain for killing Abel? The very next scene. He should have died. What should happen to David? He should die. Over and over again, we are painted a picture that all of us are worthy of death and we only live by the grace of God. That everything that we do is only because of the grace of God. And what God wants us to see so desperately and why he speaks 
in terms of like Romans 6, the wages of sin is death or this picture given of David is you are the one, you are the one worthy of death is so that we would understand that we need someone to save us. That's ultimately what this is all about. That our sins are not intended for us to be hopeless, but to look to the Savior who'd give us mercy and grace. This is why you see David's Psalms proclaiming and praising God the way that he does. He understands the wages of sin is death. He made a terrible decision. He's living through the consequences of that decision, and yet only by the grace of God does he live. I'd encourage us as we end this part of the lesson to just think about is sin worth it? And that the only reason we live is by the grace of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father. You are a merciful God. That Lord, we understand if we received, if we received the just penalty for what we do in our lives, there would be nobody left on this earth. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for how often we have thought that it's just one more sin that was going to satisfy. One more sin that will make the difference. Forgive us for not looking at how richly you've blessed us. To ultimately by telling you that we want more, that we reject your goodness and your mercy. We do not receive your blessings, Lord. Just forgive us for thinking that sin is the answer and not appreciating and understanding and proclaiming that every gift has come from you. Lord, I pray that it would just always weigh upon our hearts the weightiness of sin. Lord, impress upon our hearts the ugliness of sin. Lord, we pray that throughout the world people would come to understand how awful sin is. Like the story that Nathan told David, that our hearts would be enraged to realize that we're what we are doing is so, so egregiously wrong. Lord, help us to have the eyes to see the wisdom to understand the exchange that we are making help us to evaluate that we are trading away eternity eternal pleasures satisfying joy for these temporary fleeting foolish moments and Lord thank you that you have given us another day, another day to confess our sins, another day to be open and honest to you, to tell you how much we love you, 
how sorry we are of our sins and that we have no excuse. Lord, we have sinned against you and you alone. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for taking us back so many times. Thank you for being faithful. And Lord, we pray for a far greater faithfulness, a far greater zeal, a far greater appreciation of you in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.